Thank you for supporting the Circe Podcast Network by listening, sharing, and giving feedback to our shows. As you may know, the Circe Institute is in the midst of our year-end fundraising campaign. Your support last year enabled us to add several key members to the Circe team. With your continued help, we are excited about what the future holds. In particular, donor support helps us provide free resources like these podcasts and the former journal. Please visit circeinstitute.org backslash donate to see more about all you make possible and to support us this year. Welcome to this week's episode of Quiddity on the Circe Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc. As we near Christmas, I want to draw your attention to some gifts from Circe that are available year-round. In particular, our free audio library, which is several of our most popular conference talks you can stream right from the Circe website. In this episode, we're presenting one of those talks, Further Up and Further In, an exploration of the classical quadrivium by Andrew Kern. In the show notes, you'll find the link to the free audio library. Enjoy. So in about a month, Brian and I are going up to Rockford, Illinois, and if things go as we hope, I'm going to be seeing an old friend of mine named Chris. We, uh, we took algebra class together back in 1978, 1979, and Chris gave me the one experience from math class that I will never forget all of my life. We were talking about the x-axis and the y-axis, okay, on a Cartesian grid, and the teacher made the point, what? Wrong way. All right. See, see this, is, this is post-Cartesian, who cares? Okay, it's all relative. So, so the teacher said, here's the point, right? Here's a point, and it's, let's say it's one and one, and the teacher said that you can take this point and you can move closer to the axis, to the, to the x-axis, forever. And that point will never touch the axis. Forever! We were in ninth grade. We didn't understand points or forever. So Chris raises his hand. He says, I don't believe that. That's not possible. And Mrs. Cantor, and if you know math history, you'll get the irony of her name. <laughs> Mrs. Cantor said, yes, you can. You can move closer and closer to this y-axis forever, x-axis forever and ever, no problem. And Chris said no, and she said yes, and Chris said no. And they argued about this for probably five minutes. And it was the five minutes of high school math that all 37 kids, or whatever it was, sitting in this class were completely and totally attentive. We wanted to know. We were thinking hard about this. Now, in this amazing book, Beauty for Truth's Sake, by Stratford Caldecott, in which he talks about the, uh, the quadrivium, he includes on the opening page of the first chapter, which is called The Tradition of the Four Ways, he includes this quotation from Plato's Republic. I want you to listen to this very carefully. This will, the whole day will basically be a discussion of this quotation. Socrates is speaking, and he's speaking to a young man named Glaucon, who is actually Plato's brother. And he is extremely intelligent and probably one of the up-and-coming rulers of Athens. So there's an awful lot of weight in this discussion that they're ha having. And this is what Socrates says to Glaucon. They're talking about astronomy. I am amused, Socrates said, at your fear of the world, which makes you guard against the, the appearance of insisting upon useless studies. 
And I quite admit the difficulty of believing that in every man there is an eye of the soul, which, when by other pursuits lost and dimmed, is by these purified and reillumined, and is more precious by far than ten thousand bodily eyes, for by it alone is truth seen. You're saying, can you read that again, please? I'm saying yes, I'd love to. (laughs) I am amused at your fear of the world, which makes you guard against the appearance of insisting upon useless studies. We could pause right there for a moment, right? (laughs) Useless studies. See, what's happened is Glaucon has been listening for, for seven books now in the Republic, to Plato, sorry, Socrates describing how you build a just society. And now they've started to talk about if you want a just society, how do you educate the young people in that society? And Socrates is arguing that in order to get a just society, you need to teach the kids arithmetic, geometry, harmonics, and astronomy. And Glaucon says, oh yeah, especially I like astronomy because, because when you study astronomy, you look up into the sky and you see the stars and they're so wonderful and beautiful. And, and then you can, you, know, you can get around and stuff. There's practical benefits to it. And that's when Socrates says, I'm amused. <laughs> In other words, Glaucon has already gone way beyond what almost anybody else would think. And Socrates' response is still, I'm amused. I'm, I, I am amused at your fear of the world, because even though Glaucon has got so far in his thinking, he's still worried about impressing the world. You know, the one that we're told not to be conformed to. I'm not sure if Plato is, is referring exactly to that world or not, but I doubt it. But anyway, he says, I'm amused at your fear of the world. And what does the fear of the world lead us to? It makes us afraid, it makes us guard against the appearance of insisting upon useless studies. We don't want to insist upon useless studies. I mean, in other words, how is this going to help me get into college? How is this going to help me with my career? Does this go anywhere on the Common Core? Does this go anywhere? Where does this fit in the curriculum? What is the outcome that I'm going to get from this education? It's useless. And Plato says, I'm amused by your fear of the world. That makes you fear the appearance. Notice that word, because that's a key word in anything Plato ever writes. Appearance. Plato is very concerned with the difference between appearance and reality. Can you think of any other book that makes a big distinction between appearance and reality? Hamlet, okay. Anything else? The Bible, right? Yeah. I mean, does God care about the real versus the apparent? Is, is there, does God look at the heart instead of maybe the outward appearance? I think so. And Hamlet really completely reflects that through and through. If, if you want to know what it's like to be in the modern school, read Hamlet. It's the perfectly paranoid environment. How do you survive? What kind of rhetoric do you use when everything is completely paranoid and life has no meaning? It's a great guide for how to survive today or, or, or not. But anyway, so survival is not practical, so let's go beyond which makes you guard against the appearance, okay, the appearance 
of insisting upon useless studies. Glaucon, you don't want to look in the eyes of the world as though you're asking people to engage in useless studies. And I quite admit the difficulty. What difficulty? What does Socrates acknowledge is hard to admit? He says, the difficulty of believing that in every man, every man, there is an eye of the soul. And then he, he interjects a clause that I'm going to skip over so we can go right to the, to the description of the eye of the soul. There is an eye of the soul which is more precious by far than 10,000 bodily eyes. Why? why? Why is the eye of the soul more precious than the bodily eyes? What do you see with your bodily eyes? Appearance. Senses, appearance, right? What do you see with the eye of the soul? Truth. 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 Now, what do you think? Is this consistent with the gospel? This, my goodness, I don't know how he got so close. Except that he attended to the eye of the soul. And is it not easy for us as Christians to become like Glaucon? Afraid of the world? Afraid of appearing, on, uh, appearing to insist upon useless studies? But now watch this. Watch this. What happens, what happens to that eye of the soul, according to Plato? He says that in every man there is an, an eye of the soul which, when by other pursuits lost and dimmed. The eye of the soul, when we engage in other pursuits, we lose that eye of the soul. I don't know what he means exactly by that, but I get what he means by dimmed. We lose the ability to see what only the eye of the soul can see. When, it's not when we attack the eye of the soul, it's when we neglect it. It's when we seek the things that only the, sorry, it's when we don't seek the, the things that only the eye of the soul can see that we lose the ability to see what only the eye of the soul can see. Do you follow that? Here's the eye of the soul. It can see certain things. And you've said truth. Okay, the eye of the soul can see truth. But what if you are so concerned? What if you are so concerned about paying the bills about getting into college, about getting through medical school, about who you vote for? What if you are so concerned about entirely legitimate things that you don't seek what only that eye can see? It goes dim. It goes dim. And when it goes dim, what is the cure? Useless studies. That's what Plato's arguing here. What Plato's arguing is, apparently useless studies are what we need in order to heal the eye of the soul from its dimness, to recover the eye of the soul. So let me read it again. I am amused at your fear of the world, which makes you guard against the, the appearance of insisting upon useless studies and I quite admit the difficulty of believing that in every man there is an eye of the soul, which when by other pursuits lost and dimmed, is by these 
purified and reillumined by what? By the useless studies. By what appear to be useless studies, right? It is by these purified and reillumined and is more precious by far than 10,000 bodily eyes, for by it alone is truth seen. Now, we are in this room, I assume that you're here because you're interested in some way or participating in some way in this thing we're calling classical education. But Plato is really throwing down the gauntlet in this paragraph, isn't he? If I were to, you know, sermonize or whatever, if this were my text of the day, and I wanted to draw some application, this is what it would be. If you're going to pursue a classical education, you have to understand that when you fear the world and insist upon what appear to be, and, and, are, and are afraid to insist upon what appear to be useless studies, you can't do classical education. If you are driven by the practical, then you won't seek a classical education. And I'm going to go, let me, let me even, anybody here involved in schools? Are you, all, are you all involved in homeschooling? Raise your hand if you're involved in homeschooling. Raise your hand if you're involved in a classical school. Okay, raise your hand if you're involved in, in governance of any, any sort of, of a school or anything. Okay, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a short two-minute bonus lesson here. <laughs> there are five elements of life in, in education, whether it be at home or in school, whatever. There's five elements that you have to be attentive to. There's, so I'm going to squeeze one in up here. There's the environment, which is the world in which it takes place. Okay, there's, there's governance... There's the curriculum, the course the children run, the, the, the materials, whatever you want to call it. There's the pedagogy, how you teach. And there is the, the means of assessment. And when I say assessment here, I'm talking about assessment of the pedagogy, the curriculum, the governance, and the environment. In other words, you can't, you can't when you think of assessment, don't just think about students being assessed. The governance also has to be self-assessing and assessed by God, and so on. All of these things need to be assessed, and all of these things need to interact, and all of these elements of the life of a school, of the life of a home, need to interact in harmony, or they will undercut the other elements. If you take a modernist form of governance for a school, for example, if you take the industrial military approach that the public system uses as an example, and bring that onto a private school, or worse, into a home, it will be so discordant with your curriculum and pedagogy that I guarantee you it will create strain and tension. And if you don't overthrow it, it will overthrow the curriculum and the pedagogy. You will teach. You will teach in submission to the modes of assessment that you use and the, and the, and the assessments that you bow the knee to. You will teach. That's why you accept assessment is so that you can get feedback, right? Okay, so you will. And, it will. and you won't even know. It will create a discord in you that will redirect your behavior and create a, to create a disharmony. If you, impose, if, if you treat your environment, if you consider for your environment only what fits into your system, then external forces will come into that environment and will disrupt it. Maybe it'll be a serpent coming in. Who knows? Um, Maybe it'll be bombs, but there will be something that will come into your environment and will create discord. Okay. You, you need to have 
in your approach to the environment that you are creating for your children. You do need to have a wall around your home or around your classroom because there's specific tasks being done and you need to accept limitations. But if you're treating everything outside that environment as the enemy, you'll never equip them to interact. Okay, so these are the five elements of the life of a school. If in any one of those, we're selling out and worried about useless studies, we won't be who we are anymore. Now I think of Chris asking, saying, I don't, I, don't, I don't get this. How can a point get closer to a line forever without ever touching it? Forever! I mean, just think about this. Can you go back into that existential moment Chris was experiencing? Because that's what it was. In fact, <laughs> by, by, just by watching, I was having one. Eternity was, 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 was taking on meaning for me. You know what my teacher did? After about five minutes, she said, well, let's go on. The most basic geometric lesson was sitting there begging to be taught. But here's the thing that really strikes me when I think back on it. Chris's soul had a question that had infinite implications. It was aroused. It was looking. It was, it was looking into a mist. And it wasn't able to see what it wanted to see. And it was gazing into this mist. And after gazing for a while, he was told, it doesn't matter. It's not important. The eye was dimmed. Maybe even lost. Now, I will tell you this, that about... Two or three years ago, I reconnected with Chris through Facebook. And we, we had a Skype conversation, and, and um, Chris has been through some really hard times. And I'm not going to say that they're a result of that geometry lesson. <laughs> but I am going to say that something that was in that geometry lesson that could have helped was missed. Something that was in it was missed. When I was about 19 years old... I had, okay, back up. No, I won't. I'll just tell you the story. I was about 19 years old, and my stepmom had a great book set. That was my first encounter with it. I thought it was really cool. Imagine if I could read that whole set. <laughs> In 31 years, I've read about two volumes. So I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this whole set. I'm going to learn this. And I pulled down Euclid from the shelf. I'd heard of him. Okay. Pulled down Euclid, and... At the beginning, my, my first impression was, wow, this looks really <laughs> tedious. And then I see the definitions, right? It starts with definitions. And what's the first definition Euclid gives? A point is? A point is that which has no parts. And I said to myself, what? <laughs> and I gave up on reading the whole set. <laughs> And I put it back on the shelf, but I couldn't get away from that line. A point is that which has no part. A couple years later, I pulled the book down again to see if I remembered it correctly. A point is that, and I still didn't understand. A point <laughs> is that which has no part. I remember 
I was about 24 years old, lying, lying, putting my head down on my pillow one night, and I got it. I just, I just understood it. It had been rolling around, mulling in my mind for about five years, and I got it. A point is that which has no part. And now I could tell you what it means, right? Uh-uh. You, you have to see it with your own eye. And Chris, back in ninth grade, didn't. He thought, he thought that this right here was, in fact, a point. Whereas we were told this, but we weren't allowed to think about this. We weren't allowed to contemplate this, because how do you measure that? But we were told that this is not a point. It's a picture of a point. It's just an imitation of a point. Well, we didn't know what that meant. But we could have thought about it at least. Mrs. Cantor could have got all of us thinking about that. Could have spent weeks, in fact, doing so. Would have changed our lives. A door would have been opened to us. A door would have been opened to us that gave us insight into a realm of being that we at that age didn't even know existed. Or maybe, maybe in a certain sense, we were in that transition. You know, there's a part of us. It's as if, it's like we're, we're schizophrenic, right? There's this part of us that's not conscious of itself. It's just sort of always happy and be, going on and being and stuff. You know, that, that deep inner whatever that guy is in there. Okay? And he's up here when we're born, okay? And, and, and maybe it's, let's just call it the eye, okay? The inner eye. Okay? And, then, and then there's this other part of ourselves that's down here, and this is the conscious self. How much is a baby conscious of in regard to, to the baby's self? Almost nothing, right? He knows almost everything when he's born, but he's conscious of almost nothing. And then the years pass, and you get to ninth grade, and this is gradually increasing. You learn almost everything you know by the time you're five. Bad news, I know, but there it is. Okay. And then, and then it kind of you know, goes like that. And then you get to ninth grade. Okay. And this inner eye, all this while, it's so obsessed with the senses, the child is, that this inner eye is dimming and dimming and dimming. And around ninth grade, when the teacher says a point can get closer to an axis forever without ever touching it, around then, your conscious self and your unconscious self cross, and you become unaware of all that stuff you used to know, and you, you only know what your conscious self knows, which is virtually nothing. Till the day we die, it's virtually nothing. Was that totally confusing? <laughs> That's a guess, Matt. Totally a guess. Maybe it reminds me of possibly how um, we come to understand that we need salvation. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Go on. I don't know what else to do with that. Okay. Something like that, like where you have a conscious self and then it's in your eye, and then you come to this point of. Oh, I'm the sinner. Oh, right. I'm, right. oh, I need a savior. Right. So there's no age of accountability, but it would be that I, and it's not a perfect age. Right. Right, but, uh, right. and that's a good point. I, I'm, I'm caricaturing here. Okay, I'm just creating this caricature. If this means anything to you, don't, don't make me live by every detail I've put into this. Okay, this is me looking at something in a mist. Okay, and then saying what I see. It's very vague, very shadowy. It's just a caricature. But that's okay, because that's all I see of anything. Right? That's, what, that's 
okay, I'm comfortable with that. Hope you guys are. Because <laughs> I really don't know anything. Not in my conscious self, anyway. So, so here's my teacher. Here's my teacher talking to the class. And she felt that she had to what? what did she, why did we have to go forward? What did she have to do? Cover the material. Get through the curriculum. Be measured. Right? Keep her job, right? Keep her job. The whole system, the whole governing structure, the philosophy behind it was this. There is no inner eye. And if there is, it doesn't matter. That is the philosophy of modern education. There is no inner eye, and if it does, it doesn't matter. If there is, it doesn't matter. Classical education says we beg to differ. And you would think that Christian education would begin by saying we beg to differ. I mean, doesn't Paul say in Corinthians that the things that are seen are finite, but the things that are not seen are eternal, and the things that are not seen are the ones that we value above the things that are seen? When John Dewey wrote his essay on education about Darwinism and the impact on philosophy, his basic point was that until Darwin, everybody was obsessed with the infinite, the unlimited, and the unseen. Now we're over that. Now we're focused on what can be seen. In other words, we're no longer concerned with the true. We are only now concerned with the tangible and the practical. And his philosophy is called pragmatism. And our modes of assessment in education are pragmatic. They're useful. You measure the value of a study by what is useful. And by the way, I've asked over and over again people what they mean by practical and nobody can tell me. I've come to the conclusion that what they mean by practical is I don't want to think about it. I am amused, says Plato, by your fear of the world. I wonder if Jesus would say that to us. <laughs> I am amused by your fear of the world. I just don't think we should fear the world. I read things like this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, I'm not going to argue right now. I'm not going to argue. I might contend, but I'm not going to argue right now that seeking first the kingdom of God necessitates the quadrivium in your school. No, I, I, let me back up. I won't argue that seeking first the kingdom of God necessitates that everybody study the quadrivium. I don't believe that. I do believe that if you're going to get educated, you have to study the quadrivium. But not everybody needs to be educated. There, there can be slaves among us. Did you like that one? How I snuck that in? <laughs> because if you are not educated in the liberal arts, then you're a slave. You have the mind of a slave. Whether you own your own property or even think you own yourself, you have the mind of a slave. Just because it's easy for somebody to manipulate you and get you to do what they want you to do instead of threatening you doesn't mean you're free. Okay, that was a digression. But we are in a position where the starting point must not be, how am I going to get food and clothing? That cannot be our starting point. If that's our starting point, we cannot think straight. That's what Eve was worried about. First food, then clothing. 
it cannot be, how can I get prettier shelter? Because, but, but you've got to understand, he doesn't say these things don't matter. He doesn't say that. What he says is, all of these things will be added to you. And that's where I believe the quadrivium has an enormous role to play. When we look at the quadrivium, we are learning to look at ourselves more like we are. More like we are. In other words, we're looking at ourselves not as beavers who need to build dams, not as chimpanzees who need to... What do chimpanzees do? Use, use a tool. One chimpanzee used a tool once, so that proves evolution. Um, we, we are not beasts who are continually obsessed with practical things like survival and raising ourselves all the way to the level of decorating our body with clothing so that we're not ashamed of ourselves. These are not our concerns. We cannot begin there. Our beginning point has to be seeking first the kingdom of God and seeing ourselves as the kind of being that God made us to be. Yes? Thank you. Fear not, little flock. And, and as we fear, and that fear enters into our environment and our governance and our curriculum and our pedagogy and our modes of assessment, we lose our way. And God wants to give us so very much. And we keep saying, no, I'm worried about what I'm going to eat for breakfast. Trust him. <laughs> That's got to be the starting point. Now, I don't have time to lay out the whole argument here, but I'm going to, I'm going to step it this way. I believe, it's, this is my belief, okay? And so I'm going to talk about what I believe, not what I don't believe, okay? <laughs> I believe that a thoroughly Christian education is an education that recognizes what Plato calls the inner eye. So does Jesus. The lamp of the body is the eye. Right, obviously he's drawing a parallel to the inner eye right there, okay? So I believe in what Jesus calls the inner eye, and I believe that when we neglect it, we go blind. I believe that the inner eye can be uh, nourished. I believe that it can be made healthy. I believe that we can um, practice using it. And the inner eye is the eye by which we perceive truth itself. Therefore, it's very valuable. More precious than 10,000 outer eyes. And, I'll add this, I believe that the quadrivium is a set of tools, a set of arts, that can restore the strength of the inner eye. I don't know if I would go so far, I don't think I would go so as, as far as Plato does. He talks about, well, what did he say in this, where'd my book go? There it is. In, this, in the passage that I just read, he says, um, is purified and, and re-illumined by useless studies. The inner eye is purified and re-illumined by these inner studies. The, in, the immediate reaction is, well, you know, he's not dealing with the moral issue, but I think if you read The Republic, you'll see he is, in fact, doing so. Um, let me ask you to hold any objections you have to see if it plays out over the course of the day this way. I want, we want, over the course of today to, and tomorrow, to explore 
Is there something really powerful in the quadrivium? Okay, and my thesis is, let's make it a hypothesis. Okay, my, my hypothesis is yes, that it enables us, it, it, it gets us in touch with deeper parts of ourselves. It enables us to be more human. It enables us to think better, which would you, anybody disagree that that's good? <laughs> to think better is a good idea, right? It enables us, the quadrivium enables us to vote better. It enables us to lead our families better. It enables us to read better. It enables us to think better. All of these things. I, I believe all of that because I'm a lunatic. <laughs> I want to read this one more time to you, and then I want to read something out of this other book that we can't recommend highly enough by Ravi Jane and uh, Kevin Clark called The Liberal Arts Tradition. Okay? So here's, here's, here's Plato one more time, and then after this we say goodbye. So listen carefully. Anybody have it memorized yet? I am amused, I said, at your fear of the world, which makes you guard against the appearance of insisting upon useless studies. And I quite admit the difficulty of believing that in every man there is an eye of the soul, which when by other pursuits lost and dimmed is by these useless studies purified and reillumined, and is more precious by far than 10,000 bodily eyes, for by it alone is truth seen. Okay. Yes, Matt. Are you going to define arithmetic and geometry nah. differently than we already have? Nah. Because those two don't tend to be considered useless studies. Well, let's make them useless. Let, let, let's see if we can make them useless. I'm going to do my best. I really want them to be useless. I am, <laughs> I am going to do my best today to, 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 to deprive all of the quadrivium arts of all their, of all their practical use. I am going to render them utterly useless to you. Yes, please. I mean, I think to Matt's point, part of the thing is how we study arithmetic right. pragmatic. Right. How we, it isn't the way, it, it, ma it makes it more useless. Mm-hmm. Because it isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, let me, yeah and, and here let me bring another element of story from my life into this. When I was in about ninth grade, well, I was in ninth grade, I took algebra class. Okay. And I liked it, more or less. I was pretty good at it, and then I got in a car accident and missed six weeks, and that ruined my math career. But I can remember, my poor teacher then had six weeks to catch up, right? She'd give me an hour a week or so to try to get me caught up. It never worked. Um, I can remember, I think I asked, or somebody asked, you know, why do we have to study this? And basically the answer was because someday you might get a job as an architect or something. What 14-year-old cares? <laughs> So what? So someday I might get a job using this. But I'll probably not. It's not worth the risk. Which book is it in the Republic where he does the latter? That's book seven. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and he talks about the different uses of math mm -hmm. in that latter. Mm -hmm. Many of us use the math. We go up from the images to the math. And then a lot of times we go right back down to the images to master it, to use it. To, to have mastery over it for utility right. when the Maddie should actually push us higher to the forms of beauty, truth, and goodness so that we can actually apprehend those more. When does a child get excited in math class? Exactly. They're sitting there struggling and bored senseless, and then what happens? They see something. 
and they're happy. This is why I always use my smart aleck comment, which is true. How many of you hate math? Good to see. Okay, makes sense why you're here, right? I'll tell you, I get that usually a lot of people, I hate math. How many of you hated math as a kid? Okay. No, you didn't. You loved and adored math from the day you were born. What you hated was not knowing it. We go nuts not knowing it. We don't understand it. We can't. And then the teacher puts a burden in front of us that we can't carry, right? Very pharisaical. The, the thing we need to be doing is seeing the truth. Okay. And when we see the truth, when we see the, the nature and essence of the distributive property, the soul sings. There's no other class I ever cried about. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet didn't touch me. Okay, lost tools of writing will do it, right. But for the same reason, right? For the same reason, right? Because when, when, we, when we are forced, and this is one of the great lessons of the quadrivium, when we are forced to confront the fact that we are ignoramuses, we don't like it. People talk about, you know, classical education, it promotes pride, elitism. What do you do when a kid is becoming proud of how much he knows? Push him hard in math. That's what you do. <laughs> I, Einstein said, I don't know about your frustrations in math, but I can assure you, mine are greater. <laughs> the more math you know, the more agony there is on the frontier of your knowledge. Because you are being confronted in math continually by what you do not know. By your mortality. And so what do we do? We're confronted with our mortality, so we decide, oh, well, I'll just make bridges. And then we'll force kids to learn this for the sake of the economy. So they learn it for the sake of the economy and produce EA Sports. FIFA, video games, right? That's what they're using math for now, which I thank them for. Happen to be at professional level on FIFA. <laughs> I have nothing against video games except their obsessive use. How people don't want to be confronted with God for similar reasons? Because it confronts them. Like, yes. Really, um, it shows them something so limitless and how limited they are. Uh huh. Um, so math really is a great opportunity to show so many truths about God. I mean, just all yeah. the ways that you yeah. can exemplify infinity or eternity or forever, and then confronted where there is a forever and yeah, and we're not Yeah. Okay, I'm going to ruin my tomorrow talk. I'm gonna, tomorrow, I'm going to really make a big fuss over harmonics. I'll tell you right now, I think of the quadrivium, the defining art is, is harmonia. Okay? We call it music. Sometimes I'm going to make a case for, for calling it music is okay, but really let's call it harmonics. And, and I think it's the controlling art of the quadrivium. And I think it's actually the controlling art of the human mind because reason is not the cold... Um, reason is that faculty, that God-given faculty within us to hear the music of the spheres. Music is that faculty, sorry, reason is that faculty within us by which we seek harmony. Logic. What do you do in logic? What's the, the verb in logic? Is, right? A is B. Here's logic. Here's the syllogism. A is B. B is C. Ergo, A is C. 
Okay, what if I had said, therefore, A is not C? It's bothersome, right? Why? It's a discord. I just created a disharmony in your mind. Logic is all about harmony. Okay, what about math? At least finite math, at least the math that we can teach kids in school, 7 plus 2 equals 10. Minus 1. Okay. That was a sonata. See that? That was, did you feel the tension? Why? Because the soul knows. The soul knows with absolute certainty that life makes sense. We're born knowing that. That's the law of God, in fact. Written on the heart. It's the law of harmony. What, is, what are the Ten Commandments? They're the principle of harmony between society, man, and God. Harmony. That, that, the quest for harmony is what makes us think in the first place. What is justice? Harmony in society, right? What if you take a child and spend his whole childhood having him listen to discordant music? What will happen when he has to deal with practical issues in life? He will have never learned the joy. Sorry, he will have rarely experienced the delight of harmony and will have become despairing. He will vote accordingly. He will raise his children accordingly. He will decide. I mean, it's everything else being equal, of course. But he will determine that harmony is not the most important thing here. Which is another way of saying it doesn't matter if it's beautiful or not. All that matters is what's practical. Don't bother me with this useless stuff. The only thing is, what's useful about discord? Wouldn't the world be a better place if every company thought to itself, how can we enter into this community and nourish a harmony in it, instead of how can we enter this community and suck the life out of it for our own benefit? Wouldn't it be better if in a marriage two people were trying to make a, a sonata in, instead of fighting with each other about what they can get out of the other person? I mean, the children are going to do that. We understand that. Unless, of course, we leave them unsupervised, in which case they'll figure out how to harmonize. Right? Then we supervise and they become like us. But would, would the world not be a better place, a more practical place, if what we were seeking constantly was harmony? If we made it the habit of the mind? But what happens when, as a child, there is so much discord, social discord, intellectual discord, curricular discord, pedagogical discord, governing discord, familial discord, mathematical discord. What happens when, when you're a child? There's so much discord that you don't ever or hardly ever experience the harmony. What happens is you despair and you give up. And you say, I'm not going to bother seeking the ultimate harmony, which is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Instead, I'm going to seek food and drink and clothing, and I'm going to get what I can get. I believe that the law of God expresses itself in harmonics, in harmonia, and that the single most important virtue of soul and mind is the continual obsessive quest to make all things one in Christ, even math. Even math. Because one is a mathematical concept. You understand that, right? So is three.
Okay, so Trinity and Harmony. All right, I'm getting carried away. Did I, did I, have I lost everybody? So, so basically, there's a really simple point here. If I can put it in moral terms, we hate our children. We aren't seeking to bless them. Let me put it in practical terms. We are treating them as though they are just animals that are going to have to feed themselves and mate when they grow up. Instead, we need to treat them like temples of the living God that should be radiant in their beauty and their glory. And we need to treat them like images of the creating God who created a world in time and space full of rhythm, melody, and harmony that sings continually. And by the way, have you ever noticed that Lucifer, before he fell, was music? Was the conductor of the divine? In other words, I would suggest to you that that implies that the highest wisdom might well come from music. It might. I don't know. I'm suggesting. That's my, it's not even, it hasn't even raised itself to the level of a hypothesis. It's just an opinion. But it's interesting to me. Okay, so I was simplifying and then I got complex. What I'm saying is we have within us a soul that can perceive truth. And, and there are faculties in that soul that we are sinning against the child if we neglect them. Let me put it this way from the liberal arts by tradition by Clark and Jane. The whole vision for education in the classical tradition can be summarized in the proposition that education is directed at perfecting inherent human abilities. Want to hear it again? The whole vision for education in the classical tradition can be summarized in the proposition that, and here's the proposition, this is it, this is, this is the whole of classical education. Education is directed at perfecting inherent human abilities. Okay. The way I would put it is I would change inherent human abilities to faculties and perfecting cultivation of virtue. A virtue is a human faculty perfected, refined to a pitch of excellence. We don't perfect them in this life, but we strive for it. The vision of education is the cultivation of the virtues. Now, what is a virtue? What did I just say? What did I, how did I just define a virtue? Okay, or at least refined, right, to a pitch of excellence because perfection is too hard for me. What we are trying to do then in classical education, and you can take this back to Homer. I'm going to talk about this in the next session. You can take this back to Homer. You see it very explicitly in Plato. You see it in Aristotle. You see it in the Church Fathers in St. Augustine. The entire tradition, Thomas Aquinas, Erasmus and Luther who fought about everything else, in the entire tradition of Western education, classical education, the one never-ending obsession is taking human faculties and refining or perfecting them. And that is exactly what the gospel is doing. That is exactly what the scriptures reveal to us, is this man in the image of God with faculties by which we can glorify God. Do you understand this? That every faculty that you have is God-given. And that every faculty God gave you, He gave you so that you could know Him, so that you could enjoy Him, and so that you could glorify Him by loving and serving Him and your neighbor. And if your faculties are neglected, just like the inner eye, 
it will atrophy. It will atrophy. Every single faculty you have, if it is cultivated, it makes you more godlike. That's why I love in, in Homer, for example, he'll talk about godlike Odysseus, godlike Achilles. Well, they're godlike in two very different ways. But Odysseus is godlike in his resourcefulness, in his wisdom, in his, his adaptability to circumstances, in his anticipating what's coming. He's, in, he's godlike. Achilles is godlike in his ability to destroy things. He's godlike in his power, his majesty. Now, is he, is he godlike like the, the Holy Trinity? Well, yeah. yeah. He's more like Athena, but he's, God, he's like the Holy Trinity too. Why? Because God gave him the faculty to run fast. And as, as what's his name put it, Eric Liddell put it in that great movie. If you haven't watched this movie, watch it at least three times in the next month. Chariots of Fire. I'm going to use a really bad Scottish accent. Watch how I destroy this. God gave me the ability to run. And when I run fast, I feel his pleasure. Do you see? Why does he feel God's pleasure? Because he's taken a natural gift that God gave him, and he's offering it back to God. And he's doing it for God's glory, so much so that he's willing to follow his conscience when the entire world doesn't get the useless activity he engages in. Because we're called to a day of uselessness every week, right? But he will not run. In the Olympics, he will not run because it's on a Sunday. Now, we can call him a legalist if we want, but man, he's got conviction. He will not run on a Sunday. God was glorified by that decision and by his ability to run. Running. Now, if running is godlike, if running manifests the glory of God, how much more thinking? How much more the ability to use language? Where did you get the ability to use language and why? The ability to use language, would you agree with me that that's kind of probably, that at least it's hinted at by the scriptures that God gave us that ability? Why? He wanted to talk to us. So therefore, your ability to use language determines to some extent, not only but all other things being equal, your ability to use language determines your ability to understand God when he speaks to you, which determines your ability to enjoy God, which determines the limit of the extent by which you can glorify God. And it determines to an extent the ability by which you can speak of God to other people in appropriate ways. We cannot... We cannot become manichees. We cannot become Gnostics where we go, all that matters is I get saved and then he'll drip his Holy Spirit on me and then everywhere I go, people around me will get saved. It doesn't happen! <laughs> Have you seen that? What he does is he reorders the soul. His Holy Spirit enters into us and when the Holy Spirit enters, he brings a movement toward unity. He brings a movement toward inner peace. But if there's one thing that harmony teaches us, it's that you don't get a good symphony where you suppress every instrument. And I think there's a tendency among Christians to suppress the instruments. And, and what I guess I'm saying is let's just strive to be beautiful. 
let's just take these God-given gifts that are given to us, and, and they are dangerous. Don't get me wrong here. They are dangerous. You train kids in the quadrivium, you will make dangerous people. In fact, I've got this advertising campaign I want to do. Get, you put up a picture of Julius Caesar. It just flashes subliminally almost. You know, it just flashes up there. Julius Caesar. And then there's a picture of St. Augustine. And then there's a picture of Thomas Aquinas. A picture of Plato. And they're just kind of rolling off, right? And then after the last one, it says, what did all these people have in common? And then that goes away. You get a moment to think about it. And it says, they were all classically educated. And the next frame says, and they were all dangerous. And then the last screen would say, classical education, make yourself dangerous. <laughs> but here's the problem. If you educate a child in the liberal arts, the seven liberal arts, you will raise dangerous children and they won't all be faithful. You will be, we are training. Even now, we are training our enemy. Right now, right now, there is a couple in California, homeschooled. This is more homeschooled than classical education, but they were homeschooled. I taught one of them for four years. She was, she was fairly classically educated. And they had some very bitter experiences, apparently. And they have become anti-homeschooling people. And so they've, they've begun finding... They be, the last thing I saw was they sent out a survey that they wanted uh, homeschool students to fill out or, or graduates of the homeschool setting. And it's... I haven't, you can't read the survey unless they send it to you for that reason, so I haven't seen it. But what I've heard is that it's kind of set up so that if they've had any negative experiences, those can be exaggerated, and they can create a document that shows how evil homeschooling is. Now, I hope that I'm misrepresenting them badly and caricaturing the whole experience. But I want to say this. Both of them got a pretty high level of education, and they're using it to undercut where they got it. We are going to train the enemies of the kingdom of God. We're going to accept that. For myself, I'd rather get killed by a guy who's good with his weapons. There's more honor in it than just kind of slept to death by a guy who puts me in a room and doesn't know how to deal with me. Right? So at least, you know, that's one of the things out of the Iliad, too, is you, you really want good enemies to kill. There's no glory in fighting with a wimp, right? That's athletes. So why do you think they... Have you ever noticed this about sports? How everybody... You put, you put 100 kids out on the playground and roll out six basketballs. Almost, <laughs> almost everybody is going to play. It's going to be like the minor leagues. Almost instantly they will figure out where they go. People will move from group to group. Because everybody wants to play somebody a little bit better and maybe occasionally a little bit worse. Nobody... If I'm playing basketball on the play, I don't want to take on Michael Jordan. And I don't want to take on my grandson, Coulter, who's three, Sunday. Right. I want to play somebody who's about 50, crippled, you know, <laughs> hardly can walk across the court, because I'm going to be pushed, but not so far that I'm broken. Right? So let's, let's equip our enemy. Okay. Now, but if you're afraid, if that's the thought that comes to you, is, oh, we're equipping our enemy, and you think, well, therefore, I'm not going to equip anybody, bad move. Bad move, because even your enemy will glorify God when he can speak better. I think of Voltaire. Voltaire wrote, in a hundred years, nobody will read the Bible anymore. A hundred years after he died, they were using his house to print Bibles. And I'm thinking, <laughs> the angels are looking down, reading Voltaire's writings, right? And they're seeing Voltaire, the image of God. Broken, but the image of God. And he's writing. Think of it. He's writing. He's using language. He's writing in a book. 
and he's writing stuff anti-God. And the angels are going, look at that guy. Man, does God make amazing things. God is glorified. If Voltaire had just been sleeping, I mean, God would still be glorified, but not, as, not in the same way. Okay, so don't be afraid to glorify God. Don't be afraid of it. I asked John Hodges one time, I said, why is it in the movies the bad guy has priceless works of art, and he's contemplating classical music, and he's so appreciating all the beauty in every bad guy layer. That's how it is. Huh. Huh. Yeah. There's, yeah, yeah. What do you think it is? I don't know. Something about it. There's a brokenness. There's something that doesn't lead them to the ultimate right conclusion there. There's some frustration that they either can't attain it or can't have that relationship with God. But it just struck me that, you know, yes, the good guy agent, you know, has some appreciation for the finer things in life, but yeah, not yeah. necessarily this contemplative situation of the bad yeah. guy land. Yeah. I'm going to have to watch for that. <laughs> no, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, the bad guys are under a lot of stress, so they need to relax. <laughs> yeah. Are you one of those bad guys? <laughs> yeah, right? We all are, right? The enemy training the enemy. Could be. Should we let her stay? <laughs> yes, and that's a good, sorry, I'll come back to you, but that's a really good point. It would be very hypocritical of us who are our own worst enemies, to say we're not going to train them because then they might oppose. Oh, well. Right. Sorry, go ahead. For me, even it goes back to your analogy. So to assume that, of your ninth grade math class, so to assume that every one of us hasn't been at a point and not had some question answered, we don't know the imprint that leaves on our soul or their soul. Yeah. So yeah. The emptiness is going to be filled either yeah. by God or something else. Yeah, the emptiness will be filled by God or not filled, but tried to be filled, desperately seeking to be filled. I mean, it's not an accident that our culture is in a sexual meltdown. Would you agree with that? It's not an accident. The, the que- in fact, this, you know who I think is the father of rock and roll music, rock and roll lyrics? Matthew Arnold. Thanks for getting that. <laughs> Ma- Matthew Arnold wrote a poem called Dover Beach. Have, have any of you read Dover Beach? Okay, Matthew Arnold, read it, it's about two pages, one of my favorite poems. Matthew Arnold was the son of Thomas Arnold, the founder of the rugby school. Very, very famous educator in, in Victorian England. Matthew Arnold was classically educated through and through, learned Latin and Greek, probably fluent by the time he was 15. I, I would imagine Tom and Matthew spoke to each other in Latin just because, you know, it was normal. It was probably nothing to them. <laughs> When, when Matthew grew up then, he actually became the, um, some kind of commissioner of education in England, and he would travel around to all the schools. Well, he wrote a poem, and I think he wrote it in his 20s. I think he wrote it on his honeymoon, or, or it was, I know it was begun on his honeymoon. I think he finished it not, short, not long after that. And it starts like this. He's, it's called Dover Beach because on their honeymoon, they went to Dover Beach. And he's looking out, he's standing by the window, and he's looking out on Dover Beach in the evening, and he sees across the way, the, 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 um, you can just barely see France there, I guess. And the opening line is, the sea is calm tonight, which is almost a perfect first sentence. One of my favorite poems. So simple, so dear. The sea is calm tonight. The, moon's li- the moon lies fair across the strait. Um, I don't remember anymore. But he describes the, the, uh, the scene, that he describes the beach. He describes seeing France across the way. 
And then he draws back and he thinks to him, or actually there's a line where he says, come to the window, sweet the night air, right? So he's calling his wife, let's look out at this together. Very intimate, very beautiful scene, very touching scene. And I guess she's standing beside him in the story, in the poem, and he says, he, says, he, he describes the, the, the uh, waves, you know, they wash up on the shore and then they suck out the, the stones out into the sea and then they hurl them up again. It's just washing back and forth, right? And he says, the sea of faith was once too at the full. And then he describes poetically how it's not. Right? And then he t- changes gear and he says, Sophocles long ago, Oh, he ends that passage about the sea of faith with the line, now we only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar. What a great line, right? Talk about a, about a line making the point in the, in the very form. Now we only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar. The sea of faith he's talking about. Sophocles long ago heard it once too on the Aegean. So now he's back in ancient Greece and he's saying the, 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 oh, the eternal note of sadness. That's what Sophocles heard, the eternal note of sadness. Okay, so what, what, Dover, what, what Matthew Arnold is saying in Dover Beach is once upon a time, we had faith. The faith is gone. We don't believe anymore. Now we just hear it's, in his day, we were hearing the withdrawing roar. Now it's gone. For us, it's gone. And now we hear the eternal note of sadness. That's what we're left with, without faith, the eternal note of sadness. So what does he propose for a solution? Love, let us be true to one another. And it's at that moment, I think, that marriage becomes an intolerable burden for Western man. Because what Matthew Arnold basically proposes in this poem is that since there's no God, since we have no faith, what we need is you and I to be true to each other against the world. Is that a scene, a a theme in any movies you've seen? Any rock and roll songs get into that? At that point, marriage becomes the salvation of man. And, And then Victorian England becomes incredibly sentimentalized about marriage. And we are still feeding on that sentimentality. And have you noticed? It doesn't work. It's embarrassing to hear what the people thought about marriage prior to that to us moderns. Because before that, you were supposed to be faithful to your spouse, unless you were an aristocrat and it didn't matter. But basically, marriage was a contract. Basically, marriage was an economic transaction. Is that humiliating to anybody? Does anybody find that really bothersome? You married somebody because, because you knew each other, and, and yeah, it was good if you loved each other. The Jews would say it's, it's, uh, it's good to put the pot on the heat, and then it'll heat up. You know? But you know, that, that it's good to, to feel strong affection for the other person. But if you don't get over it, you're married. Very practical. Very practical. And now marriage has this weight... Well, now marriage is shattered because it couldn't carry the weight. We tried to replace God with marriage, with devotion. So after marriage doesn't work anymore, and then the car gets invented, and now it's boyfriend, girlfriend, right? You and I, um, the Ramones song, was that? Running just as fast as we can, holding onto one another's hand, trying to get away into the night. And then you put your arms around me, and we fall down to the ground, and then you say, I think we're alone now. 
bummer. <laughs> there doesn't seem to be anyone around. That, and that's the goal now, is, is for a couple to get away, to be alone, to be disconnected from this chaotic world, to be disharmonized. You see? And rock and roll brings it down into the adolescent realm. And it's boyfriend, girlfriend, and that's everything, and that doesn't work. So now you don't even need to worry about whether it's boy and girl anymore. And all we're doing is, 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 is tr placing more and more weight on interpersonal relationships to be the God who is sitting there just waiting for us to acknowledge his presence and to, to receive his gifts. He's very senseless that way. He's a very foolish father. He just keeps on giving us the inheritance. Just waiting for somebody somewhere to say, oh, God is good. I don't need to run from him. But Christians and worldlings alike are all running from him, all afraid of him, all afraid to just enjoy his presence, to receive his gifts. Well, I was at, at one point going to get to the purpose of today, so I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> the purpose for me, I'll just confess this to you, the purpose for me is to get a couple of days to contemplate the quadrivium out loud. <laughs> yeah, out loud. But, but um, in terms of why am I standing in front of you talking, what is, what is our purpose? It's, it's so that all of us together can learn to deal with the problem that Chris had and raise it to something valuable. Because I honestly believe that in that question he was asking is, is, is a path, a doorway into the soul's salvation. I believe that you can... You can without any falsehood, without any difficulty, without any manipulation, without any rhetorical slights, you can easily, naturally, turn a discussion about a point, getting closer and closer to an axis for all eternity, into a discussion about the soul's salvation. And I don't mean by, you know, scaring them to death about how long eternity is. <laughs> At campfire. <laughs> okay, how would you... So the problem was that he had dimmed eyes and he couldn't see a very practical thing. You see, he couldn't see how a point could get closer to an axis forever. That was his problem. But contained in that problem, in that very specific problem, contained in that was the key to the universe. Mm -hmm. here, here, here's, here's how you can see it. Anybody ever read Dante? Okay, here, here's the next great book that, that really made Euclidean geometry sing to me. I've got all the way, by the way, to the second definition now. Okay, the first is a point is that which has no part. The second is a line is breadth length. Can't even say it. Breadth of length. Okay. I get that. I got that like within minutes because I got what a point was after five years. What was I talking about? Dante's, thank you. Paradiso. One of the tricks about great literature, at least Homer and Dante, is that you have to watch for what, not, what isn't there. You, you have to watch for what is very small because, watch this now, I'm going to wander all kinds, of, I, I do have threads here. Evil and Wah. <laughs> in his book, Brideshead Revisited, has the greatest sentence of the 20th century. And it's short. He's in a, there's a, it's a restaurant scene where, where the, the protagonist, Charles Ryder, is with Rex Mottram, 
and they are in a very, very nice restaurant in Paris, France. And Rex Mottram is the modern man. He is described by by a by a uh, ex-wife as a person who was a, a, um, a, a uniquely modern product. Um, certain features were were developed to to exaggeration, and others were completely neglected. Okay, he specialized in making money and becoming a big shot. Okay, so they're in this restaurant, and they get they get soul, they get fish and and wine, and it's a wonderful meal. Here's the sentence. He's the, Charles Ryder is the narrator. He's describing the different courses of the meal. It's just incredible. The best description of wine you will ever read is on the next page. But here's the sentence. The soul, S-O-L-E, the soul was so simple and unobtrusive that Rex failed to notice it. And that is modern man. If it's simple... And if it's unobtrusive, we don't see it. And the lesson that, mo- that great literature teaches is it doesn't titillate you. It doesn't flash lights and say, this is the important part. It's not like a textbook where it says, here's the heading and here's what I'm going to tell you. And then there's questions at the end of the chapter. A great book draws you in. It makes you want so badly to see what it's saying, but it makes you work. Because by making you work, you come alive. In Homer, there, is, there are all kinds of events, or, or, or um, let's, let's put it that way. In, in Homer, the absence matters as much as the presence. The most obvious of this is in the Odyssey, Odysseus isn't even there for the first four books. His absence defines the first four books. His absence. In the Iliad, Achilles is there in book one, and he's gone from books two through eight. His absence defines that whole section. His absence defines the whole Iliad. And in book nine, they go to him and he rejects his friends. So he's absent again from books 10 through, I think it's 15 or 16. It's his absence that make. Now, if you're not looking for an absence, then how do you do that? You don't notice. Except that Homer raises the expectation and importance of this person and then takes them away from you. What's Wa saying? The soul was so simple and unobtrusive that Rex failed to notice it. At the end of that paragraph, it goes on to say, Rex looks around the restaurant and says, it's not a, it's not a bad place. Somebody should make something of it. <laughs> it's like, you know, a hole-in-the-wall restaurant that has the best barbecue in Texas. And some, somebody from, say, Dairy Queen eats there and thinks, we should make a chain. How do you think the barbecue would be after that happened? See, we are people who don't hear something unless it's aggressive and obtrusive. We're not tuned. Now, how do you notice an absence? Only by noting that there's a discord. The only way that you can notice an absence is if you have a formal, structural understanding and apprehension of what you're dealing with. And then you think to yourself, something's quiet here and shouldn't be. You moms know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) Life gives you this expectation about the rhythm of a child's behavior, and it's intuitive to you. You're harmonized with it because you love your children so much, and you notice that they're absent. And that, because there's a gap, 
creates an anxiety and you rush to fill the gap with that child. Right? That's what I'm talking about. Okay, why, why Dante? The key to Dante is to notice characters that he hardly mentions. For example, in, in the Inferno, there's this character, uh, there's this couple, Francisco and Paolo. And Francisca, they're in the Inferno because of their lust. And Francisca describes, for, I think it's for about a page and a half, how much they love each other. Dante is so moved by this. It's so unsimple and obtrusive that he's so moved by it that he faints. Now, in, the, in Purgatorio, there's a direct parallel passage where there's another character, whose name I forget, who has a similar situation, but this person had faith, so in Dante's world, this person is in purgatory, and it's about a third or fourth as long as, as it's, uh, not so. it's about a quarter as long as the one in, in, in the Inferno. And then they get to Paradiso, and there's, a, there's this precious, beautiful, holy nun named Pia, which is Italian and Latin for pious. She gets about two lines. Now, which of those three is, has the most to say? For a page and a half, Francesca is making excuses. For two lines, Pia is singing the praise of God. The two lines say so much more than the page and a half. Well, okay, here's where I'm going. When Dante ascends through all the spheres of the Ptolemaic cosmos, through the heavens, and, and actually enters into the presence of the Holy Trinity, you know what he sees? A point. A point which has no parts. In other words, he can't see it. It just radiates glory. Right? He can't see it. The most important things in the universe cannot be seen, but they radiate. And you can hear their music. And what we're teaching children how to do in the quadrivium is to hear that music. And we're teaching them very practically by teaching them that 7 plus 2 is 9. Do you understand that when you tell the child that 7 plus 2 is 9, you've just made a theological statement? Which is why they're not teaching it anymore? Here, let me, let me digress for a moment into grammar. I'm going to blog about this in the next year or two. I was reading in Bradley's Arnold Latin Composition. I'm all the way up to definition 3. And he describes what a noun is. And he says a noun is a part of speech that names a person. Okay, somebody give me a definition of a noun. Raise your hand. Anybody, anybody know what a noun is? One person. Somebody, sorry. I need, I need to hear one. A noun is a person, place, or thing? Or activity or idea. Something that can act or be acted upon. Ooh, that's fun. Now, you're close. That's not actually a noun. Noun comes from the Latin word nomen, which means name. Okay? So a noun is a word. That's the first thing you've got to get. A noun is a word. It's not a thing. It's a word. It is a word that names a person, place, thing, or idea. Okay? Do you know what they used to call nouns? Substantives. Substantive. Now, why don't they call them substantives anymore? Because a substantive, says Bradley's Arnold, a substantive refers to the inner essence of a thing 
And we don't believe in inner essence of, of things anymore. We only believe in names. Grammar, in other words, when we tell kids that a noun is name, a word that names a person, place, or thing, it's fine to say that. It's true. It's very good. Do that. But also tell them every now and again that it's a substantive. And don't tell me they won't get that. It's too abstract. I asked you, what is more abstract, substance or noun? We've got rid of the concrete practical reality of substance for the fantasy of nominalism. This is a, this is a philosophical war being fought over grammar. In fact, there is a, a book which I highly recommend called The War on Grammar, or is it The War Against Grammar? Anyway, the war on grammar. Brian? Andrew, I think it was Nietzsche that actually said, we, I fear we are refusing to rid ourselves of God because we still want to keep grammar. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Absolutely. Nietzsche, the way I heard it, and I haven't read it in Nietzsche, but it's in the Twilight of the Idols, I think. No, it's in the Antichrist. He said, we will not be rid of God until we are rid of grammar. Something like that. There are things of which things are true. Predico is Latin for to say about. Now, I can't go, we're not in here for grammar today. But what I'm getting at here is that when we teach the liberal arts, we are not just teaching useful tools to get a job. We are teaching children how to see and know, perceive and speak about and harmonize with the world they live in. Now, hear what I just said. Do we belong in this world? Does the modern believe that? Absolutely not. It doesn't make any sense to the modern that we can use language. Makes no sense. Chomsky, the greatest linguist alive today, he argues that language has to be a miracle. He, I don't think he's even a believer. I don't think he's a Jewish guy. I don't think he believes in God. I think he's an atheist. But he says language could not have evolved. The modern mind doesn't believe that we belong in this world. We are a parasite, a problem for this world. Now, obviously, I'm caricaturing there's differences of opinion on this, but fundamentally, the structures of education are rooted in the idea that we don't belong in this world. The Bible teaches us not only that we belong in this world, but that we are responsible for this world. And so because we are responsible for the well-being of this world, God gave us the faculties by which we can know and love this world. We are not to be parasites and abusers of this world. We are to tend it. But how can we do that if we don't know how to see it? That's why God gave us the capacity to add and subtract and multiply and divide and measure and play music. It enables us to live in this world, to harmonize with it, to love it, to bless it. Well, so, but isn't thinking that uh, they were made to reharmonize with God because the world is also in disharmony, so disorder, right? Because everything's mm -hmm. because of us. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was just thinking that how we're that we're, it's all fallen, but that we're, we're supposed to harmonize, to reharmonize with God. And you can't know that you're out of harmony if you don't understand discordance and mm -hmm. giving us types, genetically. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Because I was thinking about your example that in school right now, that the new map is, well, put what you feel, you know, spell how you feel so that you won't know disharmony, so your inner eye won't be awakened, and then you're okay with it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It's relative. 
But if we constantly teach discord, then when we come to something eternal like, wait, why is that not coming down? I think that's what you were saying. You used Dante and all that to say Chris's problem was that, oh, sorry, it was um, that he noted the absence. Yeah. He noted the yeah. absence. And so that's His soul was bothered. With. Yes. When your soul's, when your child or your student's soul is bothered, that's more important than his grade and your curriculum. That reminds me, before I started CC, I would end, or I would hear the sentence end with a preposition. Uh-huh. And that did nothing for me. They didn't think about it. It was <laughs> Right, right. Years later, I hear it in like... My nerves. Yeah. My nose is now. I just can't deal with it. Right. Right. So I try to stay at where, you know, trying to get that. And uh-huh. the kids are like, Mom, it just doesn't. Get right. Just tell them never use a preposition to end a sentence with. <laughs> now, now, where are you guys all at? You, you, you doing okay? Yeah. Okay. We need to take a break. Sorry. We need to take a break. How long is this break? 15 minutes? Okay. And when we come back, we'll talk some more. Um, specifically about, about the, um, about the, the um, I forgot. I got to look at my notes. The seven, I think. Okay. So, so take a break. Um, I forgot what I was going to say, so don't worry about it. Just, just take a break. Come back in 15 minutes. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Quiddity as we refreshed ourselves at Sessions of Learning dug long ago, drawing from springs too deep for taint. I hope you enjoyed this free talk. You can find the link to the free audio library in the show notes. There you will also find links to Cersei Audio for purchase, as well as an option to stream all available talks. Join us next week for another episode, and be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network.